Welcome to the Sunny Hill Podcast. This message was recorded at our Magna Academy campus. For more information about service times and locations, please visit sunnyhill.church. Come on, it is so good to be here today. Um, if you're new, if this is your first time, we love the fact that you're here with us. And we hope that we haven't put you off so far. Uh, but we do love the fact that you've chosen to join us this morning. Roger Margaret, we love seeing you here on Earth Sunday. Oh man, we've missed you so much. And um, they've been going through it, but we love having you here. Just amazing. And because um, today we're talking about the next generation. And who knows that the next generation isn't about age? Who knows that? Who knows that? Next generation isn't about age. Uh, but today we're looking at building cathedrals. And you're thinking, what on earth are you going to talk about cathedrals for? Well, hopefully it will make sense by the end of our time together. My name's Dom, and I have the privilege of leading this church uh, with my wife, Louise. And we serve with an amazing team. Uh, we're just so blessed. And we believe that God is doing great things already, and there are greater things to come. And so we're fully expectant. Who's expectant with me? Yeah. Yes, come on. It's great. Uh, so, you know, this week has been a real fun week uh, for the staff team of Sunny Hill because after last Sunday, Christian was flown over to Australia, Sydney, right? Hillsong Church. Have you heard of Hillsong Church? Yeah. Chris, yeah. yeah, you can give him a round of applause. That's cool. Fun for him. You got to teach like three sessions, didn't you, at the Hillsong Creative Conference, which is just incredible. So God's clearly using Christian powerfully right now. So praise God for that. And this morning, our next-gen pastor, Jake Parker... Is uh, preaching in the capital of Hungary, in Budapest. Um, I don't know, who on earth would invite Jake Parker to speak? at some Eastern European church. No, but it's amazing. God's opening doors for him. And uh, on Wednesday, Richard preached in Leicester. Anyways, uh, I'm just saying that, you know, Richard isn't quite ready for the big time yet. So God's kind of just gently kind of moving him in into Leicester. You know, they need the gospel. So, but Richard preached a blinder at the pastor's council. Uh, but anyways, building cathedrals. Uh, who loves the character of Joshua in the Bible? Yeah, come on, because uh, your name is Joshua, so of course you love Joshua. <clears throat> but Joshua is an absolute legend of the faith, absolute legend. We know that he was the successor to Moses. He was the right-hand man to Moses. And in many ways, God gave Moses uh, the promise of Canaan, the promised land. So Moses led the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt to their destiny. That was the plan. God had said, Moses, there's a land flowing milk and honey, and I want you guys to lay hold of it as your inheritance. Uh, and so Moses sent in 12 spies into the promised land, and the, the report was good, but there was a lot of fear that came back with the report because this land wasn't just sitting vacant. There was enemies, giants in this land that needed to be defeated. And Moses kind of succumbed to the pressure of the community because the people were petrified. But we read that Joshua and Caleb, who carried a different spirit, wanted to just go for it. They just were ready to take this land for God. But we know ultimately, if you've read this story, that uh, the promise of God was delayed. Not because God wanted to delay it, but because there was no leader willing to go for it at that point. And so Moses passed away with that generation and then Joshua rose up. And took hold of the promised land. Now Joshua was a different type of leader to Moses. I mean Moses was a brave leader without a shadow of a doubt. Did tremendous things. Stood before the most powerful empire at the time. Stood before the most powerful ruler at the time. The Pharaoh. And commanded that he let God's people go. So Moses wasn't some passive entity. He's an amazing leader. But I would suggest he was probably a bit more uh, pastoral in his leadership. Whereas Joshua was a bit more apostolic. Was ready to break ground. And ready to break necks of anyone who was going to stand between him and the promise that God had for Israel. And so Joshua did tremendous things. 
Like if you've been to a youth event or maybe you've heard it in church, you've probably heard this term before. We want to be the Joshua generation. Implying we want to be a people who rise up to the moment, who lay hold of all that God has for us and just zealously go after it to fight after the future and destiny. You've probably heard that term before. We want to be the Joshua generation. And so often we kind of, we're hard finding faults in Joshua's uh, leadership because he was just a phenomenal leader and a true man of God who loved to just be in the presence of God. But um, I want to just show you something today that just shows us a slight chink in that armor and something that shows us that Joshua was amazing for sure, but he had a blind spot, and we're going to read that today. So Joshua, uh, Judges 2, sorry. Open your Bibles to Judges 2, and if you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the Bible in the sky up there. So Judges 2, verse 6 says this. After Joshua had dismissed the Israelites... They went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. So he sends them, just says, look, go and lay hold, lay claim to the land that God has given you. Verse 7, this bit's really important. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. So the people of God who were following Joshua at the time served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Verse 8, Joshua, son of Nun, that's a name, doesn't imply that he didn't have any parents. Joshua, son of Nun, uh, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. Incredible. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance. What a legend. At Timnath Herez in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Verse 10, here's the chink. You ready? After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord, nor what he had done for Israel. So Joshua, this amazing leader who smashed it for God and the Israelites. I feel like someone's calling me daddy. It's not me, is it? No? Okay. Eliza. Uh, Joshua, who absolutely smashed it for the nation of Israel, gets to this key point where he's actually passing away. And what we read is there's no obvious succession to all that God did through Joshua. So we read this. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. In other words, false gods. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. Now for me, there's nothing more heartbreaking to this because Joshua was a phenomenal leader and he'd lived a life worthy of the cause of God. But in this moment when he breathes his last, we read in this passage that the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and as soon as Joshua's moment was done then the people's moment was done. Because what they failed to do was build for the next generation. This really matters. (coughs) Because I think this country is filled with churches up and down it that are building for their moment but are failing to build for the moment that's going to follow their moment. They live for their generation and their generation alone. And so you get phenomenal leaders who rise up and they kind of rally a cause for their lifetime. But as soon as they fade off the radar, all of a sudden the church fades off the radar too. But let me tell you this, as a church, we celebrate the past, we honor the past, but we're building for the future. We're building for the next generation. We believe this is not just a value of Sunny Hill. We believe this is the value of heaven. In fact, I don't know how Joshua missed this. Because in Deuteronomy 4, God gives really clear instruction To Moses, listen to this, Deuteronomy 4, verse 9. I don't know if it's, oh, it is. Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen and let them fade from your heart as long as you live because God knows our propensity to forget the things he has done, right? We're all there. 
God, in days gone by in our lives, if we really thought about it, could testify to remarkable things that God has done. But within a few weeks, a few months, we move on to the next thing. And sometimes we forget to see the goodness of God. But God says to Moses, look, I want you, be careful. Remember, remember, remember. But then he says this, teach them to your children and to your children's children. God's saying this thing is not just to live with you because if it only lives with you, it will die with you. But he's saying, listen, Moses, you've got to live beyond your moment. And Joshua missed that. And so we read that when Joshua died at 110 years old, after all the amazing things he did, crossing the seas and uh, marching around Jericho and seeing cities crumble and empires come to its feet for Israel to inherit the land, we read the next generation didn't inherit anything because they rose up and they were lost in the wilderness. Let me tell you, as a church, that's not going to be our future. That's not going to be our future. That's not going to be our story. We're going to build for the next generation. I've called this thing building cathedrals. I don't know if you've ever walked around a cathedral, but cathedrals are incredible. They're inspiring. They're huge. And I don't know if you've ever been like me where you're just sat looking at these amazing grand buildings which are just architecturally spot on and perfect. And you're thinking, wow, this was built like a thousand years ago. How on earth did they do this? Does anyone ever have those moments? I know I do. I see these arches. I'm thinking, I would hate to be up there on some rickety scaffolding tower trying to put a stone in place, you know, and the whole thing fall down on my watch. Like, I just, I sit there, I'm always petrified at the courage and commitment that these people had to building cathedrals. If you've ever been to Canterbury Cathedral, there's this amazing kind of sign outside of it that has been installed there by English Heritage. And on this sign, it speaks about the man hours and the resources and the time that it took to build this cathedral and the setbacks they faced And really, it took hundreds of years because they kept developing it and improving it. But on the side of this sign, there's like a pullout of a a diary insert of one of the stonemason's lives. And it says this, this stonemason would wake up at 5 a.m. every morning. And he would sharpen his tools for one to two hours, right? Because he knew he needed sharp tools. And then it said after sharpening his tools, he would go to the building site for a solid 12-hour shift where he would build faithfully one brick at a time, making sure that it is pointed and it is perfect. It says that he did this for six days of the week for the whole of his life. And then it says just at the end, and this is the thing incredible, he would do this every day knowing that he would never get to worship in the cathedral he was building. That's what it means to have a next generation spirit. He knew that he would show up for work, do a 12-hour shift, knowing that he wouldn't get to enjoy the building that they're constructing, but that his children one day would be able to gather in that place and worship God Almighty. Can we just reclaim some of that? Some of that attitude? Some of that mindset? I, I think so often we live for our moment. We live for our preferences. Oh, I like this. Oh, I don't like that. Oh, we should do it like this. In the past, we've always done it like that. Forget that. We're building for the next generation. We're building cathedrals for the future. You know, Danny, a couple of years ago at summer camp, a year and a half ago or so, uh, said that uh, God had given him a picture of a day where all the kids would be gathered together, worshipping in this place. And at the time, I couldn't see it too easily. Uh, because, you know, we didn't really have anyone leading the kids' ministry at that point. Um, but I knew that 
God had said this word, and so I wanted to receive it in faith. But in reality, I was thinking, but so many of the children just want to play on their iPads and iPhones. But now, before our very eyes, we're seeing the early answer to that prophetic word. Look, I'm trying to remind you this morning, just as God instructs Moses, remember, remember, see what God's doing before our very eyes. Now, Jesus affirms this whole value. This isn't just a value of Don. This is a value of heaven. In the days of Jesus, when Jesus walked the earth, we know that women and children were considered inferior. Why? Because they were uneducated. You know, so it's really interesting that Jesus goes to great lengths to kind of lift the cause of women, and he does, because, you know, when he kind of was risen from the dead, he revealed himself first to who? Mary. You know, now a women's testimony, a woman's testimony was less valid than a criminal's testimony because they were considered inferior. But Jesus believed in women, right? And so we also see as well that when Mary and Martha are serving the Lord, we know that Martha's running around the house crazy, filling the typical woman kind of role in Jesus' day, serving, hosting, trying to do everything. You know, it's not too dissimilar to my house now, to be honest, because Louise is much better at that than me. And, but Mary was just sitting at the feet of Jesus, which is what I do at home, you know? But there's a new excuse for you men, okay? When your woman says, get up, just say, I'm just sitting at the feet of Jesus, my love. That's all I'm doing. But Mary's kind of jumping some boundaries here because it wasn't normal for women to adopt that posture of discipleship before a rabbi, to sit at someone's feet and listen to the teaching. They were there to serve the men, but Jesus affirmed her in that role and says, she's doing the right thing. This is the right thing. But we also know, as well as addressing the inequality of men and women, Jesus speaks right into the heart of the children's situation too. And we read this in Matthew 21. So if you've got your Bibles, go there. Matthew 21, verse 14. The context is this. Jesus has gone in and cleansed the temple. What does that mean? It means that he's gone into the temple and seen lots of practices that he's not happy with. People changing money, people robbing people of money by selling things to sacrifice in the temple. They saw it as a fast way to make money. And Jesus goes into the temple. He doesn't like this, and so he challenges it. He makes a whip, and he drives out the money changers out the temple. And so causes absolute chaos and carnage in the temple. But in Matthew 21, verse 14, we read this. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. Now, that's pretty crazy, because we know that anyone who was sick was ceremonially unclean. So they weren't really even allowed to darken the shadow of the temple. But here they were, getting healed in the temple court. Verse 15. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting... In the temple courts. Now, when it says shouting, it doesn't just mean being loud. It means being a bit kind of unruly and a bit crazy. Shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. Listen to this, the religious people here. They were indignant. I love that word. Indignant. I'm indignant. It means really unhappy about the situation that's unfolding. The religious leaders, I can't believe it, but this is how it was saw people getting healed, but they didn't like the place they were getting healed. Saw the children singing praises to God, but were annoyed by the fact that the children seemed to be out of control. And so the religious spirit was indignant. I was reading this message by Spurgeon on this very passage yesterday, and he says this beautiful thing. He says, these sets of Pharisees died out years ago, but their spirit lives on indignant the religious leaders turned to Jesus 
do you hear what these children are saying? Like they're affirming that you're the Messiah. They're affirming that you are the Lord. Do you hear it? Do you see the way they're doing it? They're running around. This place should be somber. It should be serious. It should be quiet. It should be reflective. Can you hear this? Spurgeon says this. I suppose that the Pharisees would have said, we do not condemn their youth or their ignorance, but their excessive enthusiasm is quite annoying. If they walked steadily through the court and chanted, Hosanna, in a subdued tone, one could bear it, but to shout at a rate is going too far. These children cry Hosanna in the temple in quite a tumultuous fashion. Love that word. A tumultuous fashion. Everything should be decorous and proper there. Spurgeon says, yes, I've often heard the same thing in church, but there's not much in it. We can be overdone with propriety. Some of us are hampered and hindered by it. And in proportion as we get into that state, we, of course, resent anything that looks like enthusiasm. Spurgeon goes on. Enthusiasm is of God. Let us not repress it because we are fearful that it may grow into craziness or fanaticism. Is not the very suggestion suspicious? It is so like what the Pharisees would have done. We want to release life in the house. We want to release passion. It may not look right. It may not look religious. It may not look sensible. Maybe some of you were offended by the next-gen conga last Sunday. I was loving it because I was just picturing this passage. You know, because when the religious leaders say to Jesus, Jesus, can you see what's going on here? This is Jesus' response. He says, yes. <laughs> yeah. I see it. In fact, Jesus really goes for a right hook around these Pharisees' face. He says this, have you never read? Like these people were the most well-read people on the face of the planet. They studied their scriptures. They memorized their scriptures. But yet they'd failed to really read it. I mean, they'd read it, but they hadn't read it. In fact, in another place, Jesus says of the religious leaders, he says, you study the scriptures, thinking that you're going to find everlasting life. But, But he says, you don't know the power of God. It's possible to study the scripture and miss the very thing that God is trying to say. And Jesus says this, yes, I see it. Haven't you read? And this is what he references. From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth praise. Isn't that beautiful? Like saying that this may be crazy. But in the heavenlies, God, before the dawn of time, had ordained praise to come from the next generation. In fact, uh, Jesus is referencing an Old Testament uh, scripture, obviously, because he says, haven't you read? And it's Psalm 8 verse 2. Now listen to this. I love this. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemy to silence the foe and the avenger. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? So good. Like so often we talk about the enemy establishing a stronghold in our life, How about we establish a stronghold in his life? Like we talk about the enemy forging a stronghold in my world. How about we bring the stronghold to his world? And the Bible says this is how you do it. You lift off the lid of praise and worship in the lives of the next gen. So when you do it, it's like this. (laughs) I'm looking for this one. I was going to go for sin, but I thought my child protection issues. So I'll go for Adam instead. Like literally, when we lift the lid of worship in the next gen, we get a stranglehold on the enemy. So get your place, devil. Like because the one thing that Satan wants to kill off in the church is next gen. 
In the persecuted church right now in China, Phil Locke was telling me that in the state church, they've now made it illegal for noughts to 18-year-olds to go to church. The Chinese government understand they've connected the dots that if we can stop the next gen from encountering God, we can probably kill off the church. Now, I'm not saying churches have the same mindset, but they have the same practice with their attitude. <laughs> they do everything they can possible to make it almost impossible for next gen to encounter God on their level. And whilst we do that, we are depriving ourselves of the future God wants for us because when we lift the lid on praise for the next generation, it establishes a stronghold against the enemy. This really matters. This is why we're serious about singing the songs we sing in the way that we sing them. We don't really care if you like them or not. We don't care if you think it's too loud or not because actually what we're trying to do is release the worship of the next generation. Because we believe that if we, yeah, it's great. We believe that if we can release the worship of the next generation, then we have a future. This is why we now shut the doors. And I know some of you didn't like that. You know, oh, what? I've got to go up the stairs. Flipping out. I've got to, have you seen how many bags I've got? I've got to go up the stairs. There's an alternative. Get here early. That's the alternative. But oh, I used to be able to just walk down the front. Yeah, it's not happening anymore. Because when you walk down the front, you mow about six kids down on your way over there. Like, their worship is too important. So we're going to shut the doors and we're going to start on time. And you can either wait for the end of the next-gen worship block and come, all come in around the back. These literal culture steps that we're saying, the next-gen is one of our values. Totally matters. I want to connect dots that I didn't do in the first service because we've been unpacking the five values of this house. We want to be a church that is generous. We want to be a church that is innovative, okay? So thumbs up for generosity. Just do this with me. We want to be generous. So that implies more Lord. Yes, please. And also encouragement. We want to be innovative. So your index finger, we're pointing a new path. Okay, then raise your middle finger, but make sure your other two fingers are still erected at this point. Otherwise, it gets really awkward for your neighbor. Okay? Your tallest finger, we want to champion growth. Okay? This is who we are. We're not a church that is happy to just exist and maintain what we see. We want to grow. We want to plant churches. We want to take the nation. The fourth finger, where we wear our wedding ring or our bling, this is where we pursue excellence, okay? And the little finger, because it's smallest, is the next generation. These are the values of the house. And this is the thing that's really impressive, that you know when you grip something, the grip is formed between the thumb and the pinky. And I think there's something prophetic in that. As we are generous to the next generation... Our grip on what God is doing grows stronger. So we don't just go, yeah, 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 yeah. We tolerate the next gen. No. No, 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 if that, no. If that's the extent of your attitude, this isn't your church. We don't tolerate. We champion. We don't endure the praise of the next gen. We enjoy we go, this feeds my soul. Like, I'm learning to worship like the next gen because this feeds my soul. And as we become more generous in spirit towards the next gen, I believe our grip on what God is wanting to do just grows stronger. I love the fact that it's not just the religious leaders that miss this point that Jesus is trying to make. In Luke 18, you don't need to turn there. But when parents are bringing their children to Jesus for him to bless them, the disciples are saying, whoa. And it says the disciples rebuked the parents or rebuked the people bringing the children because they were just operating in their culture at the time. Like, 
Children are inferior. They're not important. Jesus is important and he's too important and too busy to spend time with the kids. But Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, no, 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 no. You've got to let those come to me. He even says this. The kingdom belongs. The kingdom belongs to them. What does that mean? Put another way. There's no such thing as a junior Holy Spirit. Think about that. They don't get the same as us, just a little version, cute version of it. No, they get the real deal. Kids can and should be released to operate in all of these things. Micah playing on the drums today? That's awesome, isn't it? But make no mistake about it, that's not cute. That's not cute. I mean, he's cute, but it's not cute. That's strategic. You know, but it goes beyond the platform. I saw Micah chatting to Matt Goldenberg, Matthew Goldenberg, who's 10, is he? 10 as well? And I said, oh, how was your morning? He says, oh, it was awesome. We had a great time in the twos to fours. 10, serving out there, serving in here. And there wasn't this kind of, oh, Micah gets to play the drums, but a heart just says, I'm building this cathedral now. You see, the next-gen value lives beyond you. It's not even just about us championing our next-gen. It's about them teaching them to champion their next-gen. That's a thing that brings lifeblood to what we're trying to do. So Jesus says to the disciples, you let those kids come to me because the kingdom belongs to them. In fact, in verse 17, he says this, Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like one of these... Put that in your pipe. <laughs> who, won't come to the king, who won't come to the kingdom like one of these children can never enter it. So actually, in the New Testament, we see the adults are coming, trying to change the practice of the children. Jesus comes and enforces the practice of the children and challenges the mindset of the adults. It's like upside down, but it's amazing. So like, oh, Jesus, these kids are so noisy. Let them be noisy. Change the way you think. Jesus, these kids want to hassle you, but like we're trying to keep them away. No, let them hassle me. Change the way you think. There's something in the next-gen value that if we can just lift the lid on it and understand that our role, it's not that we're dead and buried. It's not that if you're over 18, you're no longer needed. Of course you are. Of course you are. I'm going to talk more into that next week. But the truth is, we understand. If every single person understands their responsibility to champion the next generation, and let me tell you, the devil is put in his place. Ah, oh, so good. The Bible is full of examples, right? Just so I, Adam, do you want to jump on the keys? Not literally. Although that would be fun. <laughs> uh, the Bible is full of examples. Josiah, in the Old Testament, had a horrible dad. He was called to be king, but his heritage was bad. Had a horrible dad. His dad was mean, evil. He had a bad start to life. He became king when Israel was in a really bad way. Really bad way. All of the Israel... All of Israel that he ruled were worshipping false gods and doing horrible things. The country uh, Josiah ruled was trying to get rid of the idea of God. And all the churches that were built to remember God were destroyed. Altars were destroyed. But when Josiah came to the throne to be king, he dreamed of a different future. That's what he did. A future where God was loved, God was praised, God was worshipped. A future where church was growing and vibrant. Now obviously in the Old Testament we're talking about the temple. But I'm trying to help you understand what I'm talking about here. This was Josiah's heart and so as king even though he had lots of opposition he took his dream and he turned the nation inside out anyone know how old Josiah was when he became king any of you next gen pardon 
Eight years old. Eight years old. I tried a bit of pressure on Caleb yesterday. I was like, Caleb, how old are you? Seven. I said, well, Josiah did this when he was eight. No pressure. But all I'm saying is he changed the nation, you know, in his younger years. So come on, let's see it. Eight years old. God didn't delay the purposes just because Josiah was young. Joshua, who I've spoken about already, was Moses' assistant since youth, it says in Numbers 11. The spies who investigated the promised land were young men, it says in Joshua 6. Jeremiah was called to be a prophet when he was a child, it says in Jeremiah 1, 55, 7. He says, I'm just a child, God. God called Samuel to be a prophet when he was a young boy. David was only about 14 or 15 when he fought and defeated Goliath. Daniel and his three friends, if you've been doing the Bible reading plan, you would have seen them, were in their teens when they resolved to not defile themselves with the royal food and wine, when they took a stand against the kingdom. You've also got the unnamed boy in John 6, the one who's just going on a walk with his packed lunch and then offers it to Jesus to multiply it to the thousands. History since then is full of examples. Listen to this. Jonathan Edwards, <coughs> the mastermind, or not the mastermind, but the man that God used for the Reformation, by the age of 13, right, had mastered Latin, Greek and Hebrew. Now, I've only mastered Greek and Hebrew. No, I'm joking. 13! 13 years old. By the age of 19, he made his famous resolution to live and think only what was to the glory of God. Josh Spurgeon became a pastor at the age of 16. Josh, how old are you? 15. Okay, you've got 12 months left, right? Charles Spurgeon became a pastor at the age of 16. By the age of 20, he was pastoring the largest church in England. Evan Roberts... The famous revivalist, Welsh revivalist, who really is why this church exists, because we're affiliated to that movement. He was only 13 when he began to pray for revival, when the burden of God came on him to pray for breakthrough in the nation of Wales. And as a result of his prayers, one of the most powerful revivals that have ever broken out. This revival didn't sustain Wales, it pushed into the UK as a whole, but also went over to California, Azusa Street. Bob Jones, the founder of Bob Jones University. I'd love to go to Bob Jones University just so I could say, I'm at Bob Jones University. What a great name. He was 12 years old when he became a Sunday school superintendent. We already have younger next geners doing that. But age 13, he preached, and God saved 54 people at the end of his message. Age 16, he was a pastor of five churches. That was 16. Age 16, he was pastoring a multi-site church of five churches. Flip. And in the first year of his ministry, he added 400 people, new people, to the faith. Billy Graham was aged 16 when he felt called to evangelize the world. And since then, we know that they reckon he's responsible for sharing the gospel to at least a billion souls. Just incredible. And they reckon 90 million have responded. Jackie Pullinger first had a sense of her calling to be a missionary when she was in Sunday school at the age of nine. <laughs> I mean, there have been revivals through church history which have started when a group of children as young as five have met together to pray. See, the next-gen value is not some optional extra to what we do. It's, it's the very essence. It's the very heart of what we do. And in our maturity and wisdom, I'm calling from you to say, you know what? I want to give my life to lifting and raising the bar of the next generation. Are there any kids in here like 10 or younger? Are there? Okay, that might be tricky. Sim, it's going to have to be you, pal. Sorry, mate. You look the lightest. Can you stand here, please? Are you ready for this? Turn around. Okay. 
Okay, so you missed the choke slam, but I'm still getting you on my shoulders. So you, you're asking me, well, <laughs> you're right up there, pal. You're asking me, well, what, what, what can I do? Like, maybe you don't even have kids, and so actually your interest in what I'm talking about has decreased as a result because you're thinking, I don't have kids, it doesn't apply to me. It applies to every believer. What can I do? Well, I can lay down my life to ensure that the next generation will build on my ceiling. I'll lay down my life so that they can sit on my shoulders and they'll be able to see further as a result of what I have laid down. They'll be able to achieve more than I could ever achieve. Actually, that's the prayer for my life, is that the kids of this house don't just replicate what we do, but that they take it so much further. Like, I want to give my life to this cause, right? And I'm committed to the revival in this land. I am. I am. I'll pray for it and I'll contend for it. I'll work hard at it. But ultimately, I'm so passionate about ensuring that what starts with me doesn't die with me. I want to invite you to carry the same mindset and mentality. To invite your life and say, I'm going to lay down my rights. I'm going to lay down my desires. I'm going to lay down my agenda. I'm going to lay down my subjective preferences. Because actually what matters is that we ensure that the next generation sit on our shoulders. And they'll be able to look back at what we achieved. But more importantly, they'll be able to look forward and go, man, we are going to smash this for the kingdom. This is what it means to build next generationally. So important to the essence of who we're becoming. And I really just want to kind of land with calling even a... Because it, it, it's possible. Man, you are heavy, Sim. I've got to tell you. How heavy are you? You're much heavier than Isaac, I tell you that. Isaac Coleman, he was much lighter. But you're doing a good job. But I might, I might just have to stop moving because I'm feeling it now. I think I'm going to hernia before the end. I might need prayer ministry at the end of this message. Actually, you're quite, you're quite good at praying, Sim. You can pray for me as I go just to... I'm not going to drop you, hopefully. Otherwise, that illustration would go really bad. Love the next generation. Oh, are you all right, Sim? You okay down there? Broken ribs. Ooh. I'm so lost. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to put you down because it is actually too heavy. Well done, mate. Good job. Thanks, guys. I know I carried in for some time. Thank you. Oh, it's for him, is it? Okay, fine. You know, I, I really want to kind of call this generosity thing from you. I know we're not talking about generosity today. But I, I just want you to, to understand our multi-site strategy, like the Ferndown thing in January and the, the building that we're trying to kind of lay hold of. I want you to connect that to this next generation value. Because I, I want to leave a spiritual inheritance to my kids, but I also want to leave physical inheritance to my kids. I want them to have a smash it out of the park facility to run with, to sell, to do whatever they need to do with it. But I want to leave it to them debt free. I don't want to kind of just buy out buildings and have a mortgage and say, oh, kids, we love the next gen. Here's like a three, three million pound debt. For no, we want to cover this. That's what it means to build for the next generation, to lay down my life, to lay down my interests and say, for the next generation, I'm going to champion this cause. So I'm just going to invite you where you are. And don't stand if it doesn't resonate with you, right? Because I'm not looking to be encouraged this morning. But I just want to ask, if, if you understand what I'm talking about when I'm saying we want to build for the next generation, you're saying, yes, Don, my heart is in for that. 
then I want to invite you to stand where you are because I want to pray that God would use us to that end. And if that isn't you, that's fine too because maybe you're on a journey of processing saying, do I even like it here? That's fine. But either way, even if this isn't your church, maybe you're visiting, then you can take the principle still, I'm going to live my life for the next generation. So just open your hands where you are. Praise God. Father God, I pray for all my brothers and sisters standing with me this morning, Lord God. Father, once again, we pledge ourselves to the cause of Christ. Once again, God, we, we accept the Great Commission as our mandate to go into all the world and make disciples, Lord. And we understand again, Lord, this morning that the future pastors, uh, prophets, teachers, evangelists and apostles are in kids' church right now. In fact, many of them aren't even saved yet, God. They're on the streets. But God, as a church, Lord, once again, we pledge our commitment to let the little ones come to you, Lord, to bring them in, to champion the cause of their generation, Lord, because we, we want to be like Joshua in so many ways, but in this one way, we want to be so different, Lord God. Father, we want to pray, Lord God, that the next generation that follows us, Lord God, would grow bigger, would run faster, would become stronger than we ever could, Lord God. This is your cause, Jesus, and you're saying to us this morning, hey, this isn't a sunny hill value, this is a heaven value, to champion the cause of the next generation. And so, God, we pledge our hearts, we pledge our minds, we pledge our hands, we even pledge our wallets, God, to building a church for the next generation, God, that we can leave a cathedral, metaphor metaphorically and also physically, Lord, for the next generation to inhabit so that they can build for their next generation. God, we thank you for what you're doing in this house. And Lord, we just ask, Lord, that you would have your way for your name's sake, for your glory's sake, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people shout together, amen. Amen. Bless you guys.